Welcome to West Quasset Chapel's podcast. For more information, visit us online at westquassetchapel.com. All right, Romans 16. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, and Phoebe means bright, clear, and radiant, a deacon or deaconess in terms of translations of the church in Sincrea. I asked you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her and any help she may need from her, you. For she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Greet Priscilla, and her name means vulnerable. And Aquila, his name means eagle. My co-workers in Christ Jesus, they risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Quite an honor. Verse 5, greet also the church that meets at their house. Greet my dear friend Empanatus, which means worthy of praise, who is the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Wow. Greet Mary, her name is dual, beloved or bitter, who worked very hard for you. Greet Andronicus, which means warrior, and Junia, which means youth, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Greet Ampliitis, my dear friend in the Lord, and his name is just a common slave name. Greet Urbanus, which means belonging to the city, our co-worker in Christ, and my dear friend Stachus, which means, believe it or not, ear of grain, and another common slave name, by the way. Greet Apelles, which means artist, whose fidelity to Christ has stood the test. Greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus, um, which means advising or the best advisor. Greet Herodian. His name means son of a hero, my fellow Jew. Greet those in the household of Narcissus. His name means flower, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena, which means delicate, and greet Tryphosa, which means shiny. Those women who worked hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis. Another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord, and her name is from Persia or the Persian. Greet Rufus. Rufus means redhead, chosen in the Lord, and his mother who has been a mother to me too. What a lovely thought. Greet Ansyncretas, which means incomparable, and Phlegon, which means burning zeal, and Hermes, which means messenger, and Patrobus, which means paternal, and Hermas, which means refuge, and the other brothers and sisters with them. Greet Philogius, which means lover of words. Julia, listen to this name, God's peace for the weary. Julia. Nerus, which means sea god, and his sister, and Olympus, which means heavenly, and all the Lord's people who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send Greetings. I think I'll stop there for today. We're going to finish Romans here in the, in the rhythm, but this is where we're, all of our time will be spent um, today. So let's, let's pray, ask God for his help. Thank you again for your, for your patience through, through all of that. Father, my prayer is so simple. I plead with you to have, be merciful to me, a sinner, as your word is preached to the praise of your glory and for everyone's good. And um, we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. 
this is so beautiful. It's so timely with the last song that we sang. So I received a great song from a great friend this past week. And it was a song that I'd never heard before. But the first three words of the song are super familiar to all of us. In Christ alone. And as soon as I heard it this time, and and this is not an exaggeration, for whatever reason, I thought to myself, that is it. That in Christ alone is the key to everything in Christianity. I mean, just think about it. In Christ alone. So you ask yourself, why are your sins forgiven? And this is the refrain you can have in your head. In Christ alone. Why is heaven a certainty for all of us in Christ? Why does the evil one's accusations and condemnations mean nothing have no authority, no power at all in Christ alone. Why is our standing with God absolutely perfect and absolutely secure? Why are our prayers heard and why are they so graciously answered? Why are we under no form of condemnation at all as a Christian? What is the message that we take to the world? What do people like me preach Who made it possible to receive power as the Holy Spirit comes upon us? Sanctification, who is the strength behind that? Adoption, who is the gift of that? Peace, provision, in Christ alone. And he stands up to everything, in every room, in every place in this world. And so as you look at the verses that we read, um, why should we accept each other, Romans 15, 7. Why should we be able to care for each other, forgive each other, help each other, pray, think well of each other, and stay together? Why? Three words. In Christ alone. If your Bible's open, if you want to turn back to chapter 15, if you ask the Apostle Paul, who do you glory in in your service to God? Verse 17 of chapter 15, Paul's answer, you see it there? In Christ, in Christ alone, I'll add. Paul, when you tell the church, this is verse 18, of what you accomplished, how do you phrase it? Verse 18, I speak only of what Christ has accomplished through me. You could say, what Christ alone has accomplished through me. Paul, what's your message to the world? Verse 19, my message is the gospel of Christ, right? I preach Christ alone. Paul, what is your ambition in ministry? Verse 20, my ambition is to take Christ and only Christ where he hasn't been made known. And Paul, how would you like to bless the churches? Look at verse 29, I believe it is, with the full measure of the blessing of Christ. And I I just add Christ alone. So small wonder when someone is tied so tightly to Christ alone, this long list of people, it makes all the sense in the world. If he's tied to Christ that tightly, he's going to be tied to Christians in Christ very tightly. Because knowing Jesus Christ involves knowing people, all kinds of different people. Now, by nature, knowing people is easy for some, and it's understandably harder for others. And that can certainly carry over into Christianity. I, I think if we're honest, we would admit that. And every Christian saint, and every Christian work, and every Christian movement, and every Christian church, right, every Christian church has always been a mixture of God's gracious operation and often our own sinful and adequate actions. I mean, that's, that's life. 
Every movement, every event, every church, a mixture of God's gracious operation and often some kind of sinful, inadequate action on our part. And if you doubt that, ask yourself, why is every New Testament book past the Gospels written essentially, specifically the epistles, written directly or indirectly to the church church? And there was always some kind of issue, some kind of thing that Paul or, or Peter or, or even John had to address. So, so God is minutely and acutely aware of every skeleton in every Christian's closet. And yet he continues to love us. That's part of the good news of the gospel and what God, Christ alone accomplished. And, and we keep learning that we are now free in Christ to share that same love with one another in God's family. So it's a mighty truth, isn't it? That God first, he saw every fall and every sin and every backsliding, yet nevertheless fixed his heart upon us in Christ and fixed his love upon us and set it there along with all those gracious things that we began in Christ alone with. So every Christian church, again, is a mixture of God's gracious operation and often our own sinful inadequate actions. So isn't it true then that every story in the Bible, just to press this more, is essentially, look, you are utterly incapable of helping yourself. And you need to be acted on, on outside strength, outside power. And of course, the strength and the power, if you would, the only strength and the only power in the universe that will last is what Jesus Christ did and who Jesus Christ is, if you would, in Christ alone. So the same God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who said, let there be light, is the same one who looked into our dead souls and said, let there be life. And that made it possible for he could say to us, let's be friends. Let's be friends forever. Forever. And we, in turn, we are given power and we're given the command to fix our love in the same way to each other. Foundationally, accept one another to bring praise to God because God accepted you by grace. We accept each other by grace. And yet, and I don't mean to be sad, but what do we know? I think, again, if we're going to be honest, we know that so many Christian relationships can be incredibly fragile, can be incredibly fickle. Relationships usually not based on the grace of God in Christ alone. And, and when that takes place, it makes those relationships so easy to be broken. So whether it's a relationship that's fixed or bent on how good you do for each other, or a relationship that's based on secondary matters, you know, one party judging another, you know, okay, I like you, but I don't like you like you. You're not doing enough Jesus work. So you're, because you're not doing enough Jesus work, we're going to have to break up. Or a constant, barrage, you know, barraging of, of arguments and complaining and fault finding, which Paul told the Philippian church not to do. And so you, sometimes you're in that context where you might very well have the sense that it's never going to be enough with you, is it? It's never going to be enough. I mean, put yourself in, a, in any relationship like that, which is never going to be enough. The relationship in time will break down. It happened to Paul in Corinth. 
The church, you can read this in 2 Corinthians, like, Paul, you're, you're just not enough for us. It happened in a point in time in Paul's ministry in Asia Minor, where in, Paul writes in 2 Timothy, everybody in the province of Asia has left me. So you think about that, and you look at chapter 16, you say, what a wise and gracious way to end the letter of Romans. Now, as you think about human relationships in the life of the church, you know this, that the majority of the relationships in a church do not begin at the beginning of us. And that's, that's true. Some, but most are not. Rather, we meet each other in a certain part of time, in a certain place in our life. And so, we, before that meeting, have years of experience And we have years of circumstances, bad, good, unique. And they bring us to this moment where we meet each other in the church. And we carry that past, not in a negative sense, but we carry that with us when we meet. And then you have to think about Paul. There were seasons in Paul's relationships with the church that were really good. This Romans 16 is probably one of those. But again, to Timothy, there are seasons in Paul's life where the relationships with the church were really bad. Remember, again, to Timothy, abandon the work. People abandon Paul. And you have to deal with that fact that relationships in the church have the possibility, doesn't have to be, but they have the possibility of being very fragile and very fickle. And in an age at least our age, where it just seems to me that, you know, outward appearance seems to be almost everything, right? Outward appearance and personal beliefs about secondary issues, that seems to be the rage. You ask yourself, what are we to do? What are we to do? So I came across an article this week, and it's the title of our sermon. I just, contemplating beauty in a disabled body. That's the title. The subtitle is The Beautiful Body of Christ. Her subtitle, author, Contemplating Beauty in a Disabled Body, My Looks Don't Fit into Classical Ideals of Order, Proportion, and Symmetry. So what was I looking for in that gallery in Rome? Okay, now, before I tell you about her, she, she's basically, the way I look, I don't fit in. When I go into these galleries, I don't fit in. Okay, let's, why? Well, first of all, she has two PhDs, one in English and one in philosophy. But she was born without a sacrum. Okay, so I needed to find out what that meant, because I didn't know what it meant. And it meant that she was born with the, without the bone that connects the spine to the pelvis. So the medical name of the disability is sacroagenesis. And so again, after I looked it up, and I looked at images as people who suffer from this, when you see these people, first of all, they're often very, very short. Their legs and knees and feet underdeveloped. They're disproportionate to the rest of the body. They stand out in the crowd. Their spine is curved, which makes their back kind of arch forward. Their hips are misaligned and unstable. And they tend to be in a lot of pain most of the time, especially if they have to stay kind of like in a certain situation and physically unmoved for any length of time. And when they walk, they walk by kind of rolling their hips, kind of like a side-to-side manner. 
and what is more, she mentions that you realize when you see her that, that there is obviously obvious differences and it stands out. So this is what she writes. She's in a museum. Her body, or my body externally, does not look like the sculpture of Venus, the mythological Greek goddess of love that I was staring at in the museum. And she writes about it. And I don't know if you've ever seen this, but Venus's body is beautiful and strong and proportioned just perfectly. She goes on, two bodies, the gallery of Borghese, which means the gallery of nobility, where there is the man in ivory. He is grand and he is firm. Two testaments to, to the enduring idea from the ancient Greeks and Romans that beauty is rooted always in symmetry, in measure, in strength, proportion, in order. Okay? So you get that sense that, that Venus, you know, if she was a real thing, she's not, by the way, but if she was a real thing, she would have lots of friends. Very attractive. Lots of eyes on her. As opposed to this well-meaning uh, lady or well-meaning people who say to this lady with two PhDs, they see her and well-meaning, they say, can we help you? I work with people like you. One person said to her, I specialize in the malfunction of extremities. One person said to her, let me lay my hands upon you for I am God's vessel and his love will heal your body. And then she says, which is not the part I want, I most want healed. Now, the article is not Christian. It's more PG-13 than, than G. But she's being honest, which is always appreciated by me. And part of the deal is she's saying what I think Kate Edmonds has a song called The Voice. And she's like, I'm not the model type. Most clothes don't fit me right. And maybe I don't fit in with anything. So again, people are always asking her, are you okay? Do you need help? And then she would say, on those all too familiar stares. And I want you to think of this. In the article, she writes that her father, normal guy, if you would, left her mother, normal. He left her for a better-bodied woman. And then he left that better-bodied woman for another better-bodied woman in his mind. And she has a daughter with a body, in her own words, dysfunctional. Her words, my body did not fit into any narrative of order, proportion, symmetry, or plan. Maybe I would submit to its rigid ideals if I were recognized as worthy of experiencing them. So you get the point. She's being brutally honest. Again, the famous sculptures on view here are largely the result of papal commissions. Now, this is why I tell you this. The cost underwritten by popes and bishops because art was for God and beauty was from God and God was all over Rome. Now, if you know anything about 12th century, 13th century history and the church in Rome, first of all, the church was, the church was incredibly corrupt. Their gospel deeply flawed, heretical, and they, they frowned on doctrines like the assurance of your faith, and they frowned on justification. But what they wanted you to see is how externally powerful and beautiful and rich and flawless the church of Jesus Christ was in Rome. And so they made so much of externals. So the artwork that they pushed was make her beautiful and make him awesome and let the world see. Let the world see. And so she's in the museum and it's like, I'm never going to be like that. 
I'm never going to be like her. I'm never going to look that way. And so because of that, there's a lot of people who will not get to know her. Some people will have pity on her. But if they get to know her, this is what they would know. Two PhDs. She was a finalist for the 2020 Pulitzer Prize for feature writing for her first book, Easy Beauty. She is a wife. She is a mother. She is a friend. She is a co-worker. And she is a woman. A woman who once heard a person say to her, if I had a body like yours, I, I, I would just kill myself. Now just think about that. I, I think about that, you know, think about that as we see each other. As we see each other in Christ in the life of the church, there, there is this tension there that's obvious in her writing, that's obvious there in the life of the church. Good and bad. Things, things that we enjoy can really annoy other people. The longer that we're with each other, the more we begin to see our flaws. Hence the title of the sermon, Contemplating Beauty in a Disabled Body. Now, I've dragged you through that way too long introduction purposely because in a sense, this chapter 16, this contemplation of, if you would, of beauty in a disabled body is not me trying to be cute and not me trying to be rude. As long as we live in flesh and blood, in this broken, fallen world, as long as we serve together and worship together and pray together and gather in the church of Jesus Christ, beauty will be there and disability will be there. It will always be the norm. We will always have these wonderful things about us and these horrible things, if you would, on some level that we have to deal with. We will always be perfect in one sense and imperfect in another. And people will see that. We will get many things right as a body. We will get some things wrong as a body. Therefore, we'll always need a savior as a body. Humility, gratitude, dependence on Christ, contrition, repentance. That's the characteristics that mark a Christian. Marks a Christian who honestly is dealing with sin and losing and failing and hiding and winning and, and enjoying and so I want to say when you read, when we read what we've just read about Romans 16, there are at least th three things that are true. One, Romans 16 is the most neglected chapter in Romans. I could find hardly any help about it. And it doesn't get a lot of play. And, and you, you ask yourself, why is that? Because it's so nice to hear nice things about other people, isn't it? But it's doubly nice in the year of our Lord, 2022, to hear a person say nice things about other people in a church. Am I wrong there? Because usually the other side of it is if you did percentages, it would be like more bad things than good things. Paul has a lot of nice things to say about these people. Second thing, if Romans 16 is preached, it's often, you know, here's, it's always... To disprove something. Look at verse 1, 2 there. Can ladies, can they be deaconesses? Is that true? I mean, can there be women deacons in the church? Verse 7, right? Can or cannot ladies? Because the, the latter name, Julia, uh, or is it Juno? I forgot now. Hold on a second. Verse 7. Yeah, Junius. Is, is, is she an apostle? And so what happens, and I'm not going to torture you with this. The explanation is pretty easy. But the point is, it's like, okay, if we're going to do Romans 16, we're going to fight about Romans 16. 
deacon, deaconess, women apostles. Finally, when it is preached, I think something wonderful happens, and I think something terrible is exposed. The terrible things that are exposed is you read this, and again, all these names say such nice things. And, and when, when I do a sermon, you write, this is what I do. Think yourself empty, read yourself full, write yourself clear, pray yourself hot. That's the basic step. So when I was thinking myself empty, which didn't take a long time, <laughs> this is what I wrote down. Christianity in the West and, and in our region, we seem to be so good at fighting with each other. We seem to be so good at assaulting each other. We seem to be so good at confronting each other. We very, we're very good at staying very critical. Far better than complimenting and affirming each other. And so, sometimes the arguing and the complaining is done under the pretext of sanctification. And then I think of Jesus. I think of Jesus who never left Judas, but Judas left him. And then I think, is there some mythical place where the Christians, you know, we can arrive and, and, and if we get there, it means we've done enough good things and we've done enough right things and we're so smart and we're so magnificently beautiful. No external flaws. We have the body of Venus, the God of beauty. No wounds, no limbs, no disabilities. So no one can say anything terrible about us at all because we made it. And we'll never have to say things like, oh, God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner through and through. My only hope of righteousness is not in me, but you. Never have to say those things. Because we're doing everything perfectly right. Now, you have to be the judge of that. But that's what happened when I thought myself empty. It's very dangerous, I guess, to do that. That was the terrible thing. But the wonderful thing... The wonderful thing is that Romans 16, if you're going to interpret right, it means that you go from the whole letter and you think of what was everything that Paul was saying that brought us to this moment. Well, here's, here it is in a nutshell. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew and then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, here it is, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous people, the righteous in God's eyes people will live by faith. Faith, as you'll learn in the letter, in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so what I'm trying to say to you is that little thing is the foundation of our relationship with God. And it has to be then the foundation of our relationship with each other. So yes, behavior matters. Of course it does. It's just that the behavior of Jesus Christ That matters most. Our behavior can't get us what we need. His behavior did. So to carry ourselves like we don't need a Savior, or we did need a Savior, but you know, we've grown past that, is a very dishonest way to live, and it's a very dishonest way to have relationships. And again, the title, Contemplating Beauty in a Disabled Body. Okay, there's only one point. We'll, we'll try to rip through them, uh, shower the people he loves with love. Because that's the foundation. We, we love them, but he loved them first. And because he loved them, John says that we can love them. Okay, so here are the people. Who are all the people? Well, they're, they're fallen people who have been given the gift of righteousness, imputed righteousness. That's true of every Christian. 
These people here, like everyone here in Christ, who have the Spirit of God in them. They are in union with Christ. They're part of the family of God. They're not perfect, but they are righteous in God's sight. And they're being fashioned like all of us here into the image of Jesus Christ. They are gifts to the church like every one of you are. They're gifts to the church where the grace of God is evident in your lives, in your service to the church. And Paul sets down 26 names there. 26 individuals, excuse me, 24 of the people are named. And in most cases, he he gives some kind of personal, Christ-centered, appreciative, affirming compliment to them. Something truthful about them. Okay, so of the 26 individuals, nine of them are ladies. So as we should, we'll be good gentlemen. We'll begin with the ladies. You see that? Verse 1, Phoebe. Verse 3, Priscilla. Verse 6, Mary. Verse 7, Junia. Uh, Tryphena, Tryphosa, Persis, verse 12, verse 13, Rufus's mother, verse 15, Julia, and Nerusus, sister. Now, Paul clearly thinks highly of them all. It's interesting that the first name on the list is a female. He singles out Mary, Tryphena, Tryphosa, and Persia, and you'll have to see this in your Bible, as having worked hard. He only says that about the women. The Greek word there is strong exertion to the point of exhaustion. It's the same word that Paul uses in pastoral ministry to Timothy in 1 Timothy. He honors Priscilla. Do you see it there? First. So it's not Aquila and Priscilla. It's Priscilla. In fact, every time she's mentioned in the New Testament, she's mentioned before her husband. <laughs> I, was, I was thinking like that's not acceptable now sometimes. And, and it wasn't acceptable then. I mean, I can hear in my head, I, that's what's wrong with the world today. Men need to be men. You know, we need to be, blah, blah. no. <laughs> Her name first. It's okay. It's okay. Paul recognizes her publicly. She has standing in the community. And she was active in her service. Her name goes first. So there's a popular notion sometimes like Paul had issues with women. Come on. And then the opening verse, Phoebe. A deacon or deaconess in the church of St. Crea. The, the Greek word, by the way, for deacon is neutered. It's a genderless word. It's, it's a non-binary word. <laughs> it's true. I'm sorry. <laughs> so it's not a specifically for males and it's not specifically for females. It's, it's genderless. I had to throw that in. I'm sorry. <laughs> and he tells the church to receive her in a way worthy of a Christian welcome. You see it there in the Lord. And it's beautiful because Paul says that you're not just to receive her. Okay, so we know we love each other in, in the church and we do love each other. And because we love each other, uh, there are things in certain contexts that we should have. But it, it doesn't, you know, but he adds in the Lord. So the affection that he has is kind of like a mutual uh, truth of salvation in grace, not works. In fact, what he's saying is, is like, she's really important. She's really important. And she's going to need some really good help. So this might be the first time she's been to Rome. Most commentaries think she probably carried the letter that Paul wrote here to the church. She was a benefactor to the church in St. Crea, which means she was a very wealthy woman who gave a lot of money to the church. And Paul says, please take care of her. This might be the first time in the capital city. And so this is really reasonable. He, he says, she has been a great help to many a people. The word there is uh, 
patron or benefactor. So she used her what? There's, there's no indication that she was married either at all. And so she used what she had to help support the church and the apostles. So you say to yourself, what a wonderful lady. And, and you have to say this. There's a lot of Phoebes at West Coast Chapel. This is easy to say. I mean, you can go back and take a walk down the hall and there's a list of ministries and the majority, you know, it's probably more than 50% ladies on the list. No, I'm just saying that. Lots of ladies serving the body of Jesus Christ. And there are other ladies that are not named on there that are serving the body of Christ. And each of them are a great help to this church. And on the human level, I mean, I think this is true. On the human level, if they stopped, everything would shut down. Or at the very least, I'd have like four babies in my arms right now. Priscilla, verse 3, co-worker. She instructed Apollos along with her husband in the faith. Remember, he didn't have the whole gospel and she and her husband gave the whole gospel. Verse 7, Junia, sister, wife, or either a young girl, uh, was a well-known missionary to Paul. The, the, the language in the Greek, it makes it affirming that she wasn't apostle like as, as you understand apostle, capital A, but she was sent by God to do missionary work. And what Paul says here, and what Paul does is here, he just showers them with love. Ladies, this is sub-point number two, the gentleman, we won't take long here. I don't know why this happened, we won't. But here, it's interesting, right? So the names of the men, the five of them, are basically slave names. Verse 8, Ampliatus. Verse 9, Urbanus. Hermes, verse 14, uh, Philogius and Julia. Uh, verse 15, all common slave names. That's the, the one is the female. Verse 10, Aristbulus. He's the grandson of Herod the Great, and he was a good friend of the emperor Claudius. So already Christianity, it's making its way into the Roman Empire. Secondary sources has Narcissus. That's verse 11. He was very wealthy. He was well known. He was a slave. He became free, and he had great influence on Claudius. And he was a Christian. Paul mentions him. Verse 13, Rufus. That probably was the son of Simon of Cyrene. You read about him in Mark chapter 15. Remember Simon carried the cross to Golgotha. He finished carrying the cross for Christ. And so what you have here, and here's the point. You have this diversity in race. You have this diversity in rank. You have this diversity in sex. Okay, so you have ladies, you have gentlemen, and then then you have a body and mutual dependence. And here's what I want to say. The body has mutual dependence on each other absolutely. But Christ first. And I say that because the only way the relationship is going to be maintained in any meaningful way is because of what Christ has done and what Christ is doing. So there is this unity in Christianity that transcends all the natural differences. Look, verse 3, if your Bible is open, verse 7, verse 9, verse 10, 10. Four times Paul describes his friends as being in Christ. And then five times he uses the phrase, in the Lord. Verse 8, verse 11, twice in verse 12 and verse 13. So it just doesn't stop, if you would, with the name. He gives it that gospel thing at the end. Twice he uses family language of the church. Sister and brother. Verse 1, verse 14. This is going to make sense in a minute. In addition, he says, beloved or my beloved. Verse 5, verse 8, verse 9, verse 2. 
And then he uses phrases like fellow workers, right, in the faith, verse 3, verse 9. Fellow sufferers for the faith, verse 4, verse 7. And the point, what I'm trying to say is all of this relational activity has to do with one person for Christ. Now, if you think about it, when you talk about each other and we talk about each other, we tend to not use these phrases. We tend to not think, if you would, this way when we think of each other. But my question is, do you think that it would help if we did? Like, person X does this in Christ. He's my fellow worker in Christ. My brother, he's my brother. She's my sister in Christ. We've suffered a lot together. Things like that. Again, mutual dependence on each other, absolutely. But first in Christ alone. And you see, the reason why I say that is when you read this list, there's all the difference in the world between, you know, a church being a really swell club. Everybody believes the same thing about everything, and, and it's like, we're just a club. We just get along so great, because we're all alike. Same background, same this, same that. So there's a difference between a club and the body of Jesus Christ, where there's all these different types of people, all under one head, different statuses that they hold in community, of course, different sex and different colors of skin, all of it. So I want you to think with me as I close. The most attacked doctrines usually in the Bible are two. One is the total depravity of men and women. That, that says, you know, you can't do anything to earn a right standing with God. And then the other one is the doctrines of grace, which says God in Christ has mercifully given everything, has done everything that you can never earn. You're too weak, too sinful, too inadequate, so God, by his grace, does it. And I say that because every other religion in the world, except Christianity, says men and women have to do something. And so there's basically two religions. There's, 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 there's the world system and human achievement, and if you do enough, then you're in, or divine accomplishment. God has done enough by faith in what Christ has done, you're in. So every other relationship or religion is, is, is human involvement. And I say that because then if you're going to have a real relationship in that context, then the basis of that is your ability, your work. Because if human achievement is the basis, then all of a sudden people become your props. You, you need to do good things for them to, to get what you need. Salvation, whatever it means in all the different other religions. So it makes sense to me that Paul ends this letter that basically said throughout of all, listen, you are saved by a gracious act of a merciful God. So you live by faith, just live by faith. That's why you're right with him, imputed righteousness. You're in union with Christ. It's all, all given. None of it's earned. You've been reconciled by the will of God. All things that are good about you are from God. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old thing's gone. New things have come. And in the new birth... In that new conversion, all that is new about you in Christ, that stuff is given. And therefore, you know, that kind of relationship then means that um, there's nothing I have to do to earn your love and your trust and affection and, and vice versa. I think that's why Paul wrote in chapter 15, the insults of those who you have insulted have fallen on me. How could you say that about another believer? 
So here we see that everyone doesn't have to be everything in the church. That everyone is essential. And everyone is crucial. And everyone is needed. And everybody should be loved. Just as they are. Let me close with this. Sometimes on a bad day, when I greet people, new people in the church, in the back of my head, on a bad day, something like, front of me, it's wonderful to meet you. And it, hopefully it is, you know. Back of my head, when, when is going to be the day that you stop liking me? When, when is the day going to be for you when I'm not going to be enough for you? It's on a bad day. On a good day, if I do that, I say, when Satan tempts me to that kind of despair and reminds me of the guilt within, because I shouldn't think things like that. Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. And because of that, I'll never have a bad day in God's mind because of Christ. And the hope is that we'll never have, I mean, right, most of our days this way will be good. Can I tell you about Yasser? Then we'll be done. Yasser is the third grade boy who I met on Friday. Yasser is like me. Yasser likes to hold hands. He's almost as, he was almost as tall as me. <laughs> Very athletic. We're going downstairs. He says, Mr. Joe, Mr. Joe. I said, yes, Yasser. He goes, I can't do this. I said, happily, I said, would you, would you like me to hold your hand? I love holding hands. He's like, yes, yes. I said, come on, buddy. Three flights of stairs were going down. I'm just like loving this. I'm holding his hand and I'm patting his hand. And, and then halfway down, he goes, wait a minute, I can do it. I'm like, no, you can't, but okay. Two steps, he goes, no, no, hold my hand. I'm like, yes, yes, sir, I will hold your hand. I'm happy to do it. And it was so great. And we had a great day together, Yasser and I. The other kids, okay, but Yasser and I, we just, we had a good day. And I told them before I left, I said, I just want to tell you, Yasser, I told all the kids this, but I said, it's such a privilege to be with you today. I want you to know that. And I said, we may never, we may never meet each other again, Yasser. But I want you to know it was just a privilege to be with you today and, and watch over you and do all this stuff with you. Thank you, Mr. Joe. And then I thought to myself, if I, if I lived here, would Yasser and I be good friends? And, and maybe Yasser would become a Christian. I didn't know what was going on in his life at the time then. But I'm like, would he be a Christian? And could we just be best friends forever and ever until I die? Because I'm probably going to die before Yasser. But could we just, is that possible? And I think Romans 16 screams at us, yes, it is possible. That we can all get really old together in Christ. And in some sense, we'll all die together, staying together in Christ. It'll take a miracle. <laughs> but 
That's God's specialty. That's his specialty. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the truth as it is in Jesus. Thank you that you leave almost nothing left to us, up to us. Thank you that grace is real, it's powerful, changes lives, it changes the fundamental direction of our life, changes us. Please, by your spirit, help us as a body to hold hands together till death do us part. For Jesus' sake. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. Thank you for listening this week. If you were helped or encouraged by this sermon, please share it with others. For additional information, visit us online at westquestatchapel.com. There you'll find other resources to connect you to Christ in His church. Also, we invite you to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or our YouTube channel. We hope you join us again next week as we grow together in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.